This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, where we always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we are on the frequency 7260 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And online, it's www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and I'm driving the show with Onelens Insi, Tracy Boomgaard, and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Mozambique appoints three top commanders of opposition Renamo to key army command posts as part of peace-building efforts. Rwandan prosecutors say they, appeal, they will appeal a high court ruling acquitting government critic Diana Rigara and her mother. In economics, South Africa's Minister of Trade and Industry says he's hopeful that the intra-Africa trade fair will pave the way to increase trade in Africa. And in sport... Peter Steff Dutoy and Malcolm Marks uh, among the five nominees for the prestigious SA Rugby Player of the Year awards. But first, the news with Onelin Sinsi. Thank you, Samara. Opposition leaders say a teenager has been killed in the latest violence in central DRC after police fired towards a group of supporters ahead of a rally by opposition candidate Felix Chisekedi. Voters go to the polls in less than two weeks with opposition leaders saying the regime of Joseph Kabila is determined to cling to power. The opposition UDPS says the 17-year-old was singing with party activists when he was killed by a policeman who fired at him. The incident occurred in Mbujimai, the country's third city, which lies in the violence-hit Kasai province. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will study the High Court judgment that the state is not liable to pay former President Jacob Zuma's legal fees in personal criminal matters. The High Court in the capital Pretoria has ruled against Zuma in his legal fees battle case. Led by Deputy Judge Obrili Dwaba, the court's full bench ruled that Zuma is not entitled to state funding in his legal battle. The opposition DA and EFF parties filed papers in March this year asking the High Court to set aside a 2006 agreement about legal costs Zuma incurred for his criminal prosecution that was signed by the presidency. Ramaphosa has always stated that he will abide by the decision of the court in this matter, presidential spokesperson. President Ramaphosa will study the judgment, will study its implications for the state, and then on the basis of that, we'll be able to give a way forward. The main challenger to President Muhammadu Buhari in next year's presidential poll has now signed a deal committing to peaceful elections a day after missing the initial ceremony in the capital. Abu Bakr was absent from Tuesday's ceremony in Abuja at which Buhari and dozens of other presidential candidates signed a deal to ensure non-violence during February's crucial polls. The PDP had put Abu Bakr's absence down to a communications lapse between the National Peace Committee and the ruling party's National Secretariat. Voters in Africa's most populous nation will choose a new president in parliament on February 16 next year. 
British Prime Minister Theresa May is taking part in a summit with EU leaders in Brussels as she tries to win changes from Europe so her Brexit deal can be supported in the UK. She survived a vote of no confidence late on Wednesday but confirmed on her way into the Brussels summit that she won't lead the party into another election. European correspondent Jack Parrock. Before the summit in Brussels, Theresa May sat down with her Irish counterpart, Leo Varadkar. She'd had to skip a meeting with him in Dublin on Wednesday to defend her leadership in London. Her mission at this summit now? To persuade EU leaders to give her some kind of binding assurances that an insurance policy known as the Irish backstop won't be used. It's the part of the Brexit deal which seeks to keep the Irish border open, even if the UK and the European Union can't agree a trade deal before the end of 2020. The mood music is that EU leaders are on her side, but that the Brexit deal which she can't get support for in the UK at the moment is not up for renegotiation. Jack Parrick, SABC News, Brussels. Lastly, a third person has died after being wounded by a gunman who attacked a popular Christmas market in Strasbourg in France. Strasbourg is the government's regional authority in eastern France. The toll now stands at 13 injured, with five still in critical condition. Hundreds of police are still searching for the fugitive gunman. On Sunday, the 23rd of December, Channel Africa will bring you news updates on the DRC presidential elections as well as updates throughout the festive season. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or Channel 802 on the DSTV bouquet or Shot Wave. Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Now, Mozambique has appointed three top commanders of Renamo, Mozambique's largest opposition party and former rebel movement, to key army command posts as part of peace-building efforts between the government and Renamo. Renamo's generals were named uh, to the key positions of Director of Operations, Director of the Military Information and Director of Communications. Now, peace talks with President Felipe Nussi uh, and his government began in 2016 in a process initiated by Renamo's veteran leader, uh, Afonso Takama, uh, who died in May last year. Now, the ruling Frelimo party has been in power since Mozambique won independence from Portugal in 1975. Our Mozambican correspondent, Bright Sonjera, has more. This is uh, the situation that uh, the late Afonso Takama discussed uh, with the president of Mozambique, Felipe uh, Jacinto. They agreed that uh, some of the uh, soldiers from Renamo have to join uh, the uh, security uh, government in the government and now uh, these soldiers have been uh, promoted. But what is coming out from uh, Renamo is saying uh, they are saying that these are the members inside, uh, these are the soldiers that have been working under the government since uh, the ceasefire uh, uh, in various years ago. Uh, what they are looking for as a Renamo is that they want uh, some people who are still working now to to join the government soldiers and not only uh, promotion being promoted to only the people who have been working uh, under the uh, w- with the government uh, since uh, they signed the ceasefire uh, agreement. Uh, so as of now, uh, lots of people they are saying that uh, it is good. Uh, 
uh, what has uh, uh, agreed uh, with the late Afonso Jakama and now uh, the, the government is implementing uh, the, the peace and tranquility in the country. Sure. What is uh, good now, the good news is that uh, the European Union uh, donated uh, 50 million uh, US uh, euros, uh, the, the funds that will uh, accommodate the Renamo soldiers into the government and uh, operation uh, that will be operation so that uh, the Renamo soldiers must, must return the equipment that has been uh, working with uh, in the bush or so the place where the coordinator of uh, Renamo uh, is living. There's a lot of soldiers there of Renamo and now uh, they want to return everything that they have, they are keeping over there. Are there any timelines uh, bright in terms of when uh, full integration is going to happen? Of course, as of now, the, the president of the Republic, uh, this is uh, Philippe Jacinto News, is saying that uh, uh, they still holding discussions of the coordinator of Renamo Sufumoman so that they see when uh, uh, they're going to start these operations and integration. Uh, what has happened is that the uh, government called the international observers to, uh, to assist the government when they do that operation and the integration. But as of now, there's no evidence that has been laid out that uh, uh, all the integration will, will start from ABCD up to ABCD. So as of now, what I, I, I can assure uh, the listeners is that uh, uh, Renamo uh, is still uh, saying, uh, accusing the government to rob elections of uh, 2018. That was in uh, uh, 10 October last year, uh, uh, this year. So still saying that the discussions of peace and tranquility in the country they will hold after the, uh, the first thing to discuss will be the elections the local government elections is what Osufo Mamad uh, said. It has been a while since Osufo Mamad took over the Renamo leadership on an interim basis uh, following Gakama's death uh, last year. Do we know when a new leader will be elected? Of course. Uh, the, the national convention uh, that will be a part of convention will be uh, in January, so that the, there is where they will uh, elect the new leader of uh, Renamo. What I what I knew from the um, leadership of Afonso Jakama, they are saying that uh, one the leadership of Afonso Jakama, one of the brother of his brother, uh, will be taking place of the Afonso Jakama in the party. But this is just ideas uh, from the. Uh, from the Afonso uh, Jakama relatives. They are saying that uh, uh, the one who was one of the uh, brothers of Afonso Jakama had to take place of Afonso Jakama so that the name of Afonso Jakama must not die in the party. So they will continue uh, keeping the Afonso Jakama. Now that was Bright Sonjera, our reporter in Mozambique, on the line from the capital Maputo talking to Kumbelo Muzerere. Landowners in South Sudan's capital, Juba, and the northeastern town of Wau have accused the United Nations mission in the country, uh, UNMISS, of illegally taking hundreds of acres of their land. Now, UNMISS says it will revert 
the land back to its owners once the displaced people return to their homes next year. James Shimanyula reports. According to the landowners in South Sudan, the United Nations mission in the country has been illegally using their land for five years. The owners have land in South Sudan's capital, Juba, and the northeastern town of Wau, near the country's border with the Central African Republic. The owners say the UN mission has used their land to illegally settle more than 40,000 internally displaced people. They assert that the UN mission has never consulted them for permission to use their land as settlement areas. Let us hear from Atanas Chongo, who legally owns land in South Sudan's capital, Yuba, the very land that has been illegally taken by the UN mission. This land was demarcated and legally given to us. We own the land and we have the documents for it and we started to develop it. I am talking here somebody who has already had, say, a foundational uh, structures in place. But now to be surprised that the land had been given to enemies. Steve McCall planned to develop his land in 2013 when it was registered in his name. Now, after five years, he cannot develop the land located on the outskirts of the capital, Juba, because, as he puts it, it has been taken by Unimis. All my plan has been blocked because someone is there. We are not against those who are staying there, but we are against the process which has been done, our land to be confiscated and to be occupied by Unimis. Makwele Deng has two pieces of land in the northeastern town of Wau. Unimis has occupied the land since 2016. They are there now for almost three years. They cannot continue occupying our lands, saying that this is an emergency. No. Imagine supposed to go there for one month, three months at least, and then they request a land from the government, and government, I'm sure, they can give them a land. But why, why they are actually, they, they are talking about human rights, but they are violating our rights. You see, these are our rights. That was Makwel Deng, one of the owners of land that he and other two South Sudan citizens say has been illegally taken by the UN mission in the country. Responding to the accusation by the landowners, the head of the UN mission in South Sudan, David Sierra, acknowledges that indeed his mission occupies people's land. However, Sierra says... The land will in the future be reverted to the owners. He gives an example of internally displaced people who resided on the land in Wau, but some of them have returned to their rural homes. In Wau, there were 39,000 people a year ago. Today, there are around about 14,000. So 16,000 people nearly have gone back to their homes. As they go back to their homes, we'll be in a position to hand that land back to its owners. That was David Sierra, head of the United Nations Mission in South Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango.
Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The time is now 17.16 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with myself, Samora Mangesi. Now moving to Rwanda where Rwandan prosecutors say they will appeal a high court ruling acquitting government critic Diane Rigara and her mother Adeline Rigara of insur- insurrection and forgery. Now media reports say the National Public Prosecution Authority would file an appeal in the appellate court seeking to re-examine evidence pinning the regards to possible wrongdoing. Now, to get a response to the happenings, Channel Africa spoke to Professor Dominique Ewizemana, Associate Professor at the School of Public Management and Public Policy at South Africa's University of Johannesburg, and Victor Homoeswane, a political commentator and author of Africa is Open for Business. I'm glad that the courts were able to make a ruling because, remember, a successful country needs to have a very strong executive, needs to have a strong legislative arm, and it needs to have a strong judiciary and a strong media uh, contingent. Mm. So the perception or fact or otherwise that the legal, the judicial system of Rwanda was not independent and it was making decisions based on the pressure from the executive was not going to work in favor of a country that otherwise has done very well. Do I know enough about Diane Rigara? I don't know. I I know what I read in the media. I go to Rwanda a lot, actually. I ask people about her. I get all kinds of different answers about whether or not the charges were justified. I was one of the people who were happy when she stood for elections, a 30-something-year-old, a woman Mm. in a country that's got about the highest representation of women in legislative Mm. assembly. I thought, well, here's an opportunity for a younger woman to challenge for power. I didn't think she would win, even if she had been allowed. I think Paul Kagame is just far too big a brand in Rwanda for anybody to win against him in an election. Mm. Whether you consider elections free or fair or not, it doesn't matter. He's just that big a brand. But I'm glad that the courts were able to make a ruling. Let me come to you, Prof, uh, in terms of your thoughts, because... The question in note here is the fact that we are seeing constant crackdown on opposition here. As much as uh, Victor does hail um, the government in terms of uh, its business acumen, but also the courts for actually having an independent decision in regards of this particular case, there seems to be a trend that we're seeing here in the Rwandan government whereby we do see a very uh, violent form of uh, a crackdown on. Before I answer your question, sir, let me first start by giving you some facts regarding Diane Rwigara. Um, just to support what uh, my colleague Victor has said, uh, but also he clarified that he does not know very well uh, Diane Rwigara. So Diane Rwigara the, is, a, is a businesswoman um, a human rights activist. Mm. Uh, she was obviously stopped from standing up as an independent candidate in 2017. And uh, well, she's a daughter of a, a prominent businessman, a hotel owner, a owner of tobacco companies, and as a, a 
a financier of the RPF, the Rwandan the ruling party at mm. the moment. Okay. So as a financier of the RPF, mm. obviously both Diane and uh, her father and her family, they know very well Paul Kagame. They are both from the same ethnic background. And uh, according to the information, the only thing that uh, probably uh, one of the things that uh, led to uh, anger the Paul Kagame was that uh, the Uyghurs being business tycoon in the country might not have allowed the RPF and the Porokagame to have a shares in their company and uh, for that uh, I think that was uh, one of the biggest uh, mistakes. But to put into a perspective all the facts, let's have the facts here in front of us. So if we know what happened uh, chronologically we will understand really that uh, the issue of independence of courts and uh, the uh, the freedom of any freedom you can th uh, think of uh, really is questionable in the country. On the 4th February 20, uh, 2015, the father of the Uyghara was killed mm. and uh, the family stands uh, to the point that they believe the Wandani government, specifically Porokagame, might have a hand in the killing of the father. Obviously uh, the government say no, it was just an accident. Mm. 2015 the same year, Porokagame uh, changes the constitution. Porokagame has been a de facto president from 1994, where as a vice president and a minister of defense, a chief of staff, and all of that, you are really in the decision-making position, even if you're not the, the, the president of the republic. In 2000, he became a de facto, de facto president. Mm. Two, from 2002 to uh, 2017, mm. almost, it's almost 24 years mm. in the government. Mm. He changes the government in 2015. 2017, he stands again. He, oh, he changes the constitution. Yes, and, mm. then, and then he will stand, he will be present for the next seven mm. years, mm. which are renewable two times, we need extra 10 years up until 2034. Mm from 1994 up to 2034. So where is democracy in that kind of environment? Uh, that, 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 that's a questionable factor here. Now, what led to uh, Diana Guigara's arrest? Now, obviously, as a presidential candidate, she was required to present some support as a list of 600 people who are, who are willing to support mm. her. And she's, she submitted a list of around 900 names mm. to the National Electoral Commission. Uh, some of them were disqualified. And then she went on, brought uh, 120, just about under 1,200, mm. the double, double the number of the, 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 the names that she's required to submit. Mm. She still was disqualified anyway. And uh, later on, she did not give up. On the, on the 14th of, um, uh, of June, mm. uh, she was disqualified. But on the 14th July, she did not want to give up. She started a, 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 a movement. Mm. You know, the Salvation People's Movement mm. to keep campaigning. Her campaign was on human rights, on the issues affecting Rwanda, high levels of poverty, sure. inequalities, uh, kidnapping, disappearance, mm. uh, lack of justice, and mm. all of th those kind of things. Now that was Victor Khomoiswane, a political commentator and author of Africa is Open for Business. And you also heard from Professor Dominique Ewezeimana, Associate Professor at the School of Public Management and Public Policy at South Africa's University of Johannesburg. They were speaking to Benjamin Mushatama.
Now, the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation Television, otherwise known as ZTV, is in trouble over a statement made on one of its programs suggesting albinism is due to witchcraft. Human rights groups and medical experts have expressed concern over the unfortunate statement made during a primetime show and called on the television uh, to correct the myth. Now, currently people living with albinism are at risk of ritual murders due to belief that certain of their body parts heal HIV and cancer and can create wealth. Now, uh, Simon Michemwa reports from Harare. Albinism is a genetic disorder that causes the skin, hair or eyes to have little or no color of which one in 18,000 get affected in the United States of America. In Africa, human rights organizations have been fighting to demystify the belief that albinism is caused by witchcraft. The witchcraft belief has in the past years seen a number of people living with albinism losing their lives as certain people think certain body parts cures HIV and cancer. Young ladies with albinism are also at risk of being sexually abused as certain men also believe sleeping with one such girl is a cure of various ailments. While Zimbabweans are yet to experience widespread attacks of people with albinism, a statement by the traditional healer or national broadcaster ZBC is brewing a storm. The statement was to the effect that albinism is a result of witchcraft, but the Zimbabwe Association of Doctors for Human Rights Secretary General Evans Mastara condemned the utterances. The program that was aired on ZTV encouraged or it cemented certain myths and misconceptions about the albinism because the person who was expressing his views uh, said that uh, albinism is the result of uh, witchcraft which is uh, wrong and uh, outrageous. In, in Africa we have seen people who are living with albinism being persecuted and murdered because of such beliefs. It has happened in Tanzania, Malawi and South Africa and Zimbabwe have not uh, witnessed uh, an incident of that. But when we start propagating our views like that, it will now start to instill thoughts that in certain people. And uh, we might start to witness uh, incidents of people being murdered for, for their beliefs. We believe that uh, media houses should be at the forefront of uh, demystifying those myths. But when we see a national broadcaster now propagating those myths, and, uh, and uh, we, we, we become worried. Alive. Albinism initiative demanded an apology from the national television as the witchcraft statement has a potential of endangering people living with albinism. Secretary General Malvin Brian Stolle had this to say. Live Albinism Initiative is greatly concerned with the reckless and malicious utterances made by one P. Nyaude who boldly yet ignorantly stated that albinism is as a result of witchcraft. The potentially damaging statement was made on the 10th of December 2018 uh, on ZBC TV on a program called Spiritual Highway. The statement comes right at the heels of an attempted abduction of a woman with albinism in Borodeo, Harare, Zimbabwe on the 27th of November 2018 for suspected ritualistic purposes. In neighboring countries, a large number of persons with albinism has been killed, maimed and displaced for rituals. In Zimbabwe, our constituency of persons with albinism faces insurmountable stigma and discrimination due to heartless and barbaric, archaic and counter-progressive elements in society as epitomized by the aforementioned Mr. P. Nyaude. 
We note how such statements have a ripple effect and can result in gruesome and unfortunate consequences on our constituency. We respect programs that promote culture and our heritage and respect people's views expressed on such programs, but also condemn any aspect of the program which violates other people's rights through spreading lies and genocidal propaganda. Dewa Mavinga, senior researcher with the Human Rights Watch, said utterances on ZBC were irresponsible and unfortunate and should be reversed. It is greatly irresponsible for the national broadcaster Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation TV to allow uh, a fraudulent, uh, fake so-called healer and prophet uh, Patriarch Binyaude to utter falsehoods that are potentially dangerous and claim that albinism is caused by witchcraft uh, during prime time viewing as happened on the 10th of December. We want the ZBC TV to take action and withdraw those unfortunate statements by Nyawude and bring on air a medical expert to clarify and tell the nation of Zimbabwe that albinism has nothing to do with witchcraft. Failure to do that might lead to serious abuses uh, targeting children with albinism and people with albinism. Meanwhile, ZBC has since distanced itself from the utterances by the healer during one of its programs on the 10th of December. Zimbabwe has only one national television and a few private players in Zimbabwe are broadcasting online. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. And a quick reminder that if you want to get in contact with us with regards to any of the stories that you have heard on the show so far, you can do so by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can WhatsApp us to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. And whilst you're there, don't forget to follow us as well. Personally, I am at Samora underscore Mangesi. And right now, the time is 17.29 Central African time, almost 17.30. I think it's time for us to get an update from Ms. Onilensinzi in the news headlines. The Electoral Commission in the Democratic Republic of Congo has confirmed that 8,000 electronic voting machines have been destroyed. The main challenger to President Muhammadu Buhari in next year's presidential poll has now signed a deal committing to peaceful elections a day after missing the initial ceremony in the capital. And British Prime Minister Theresa May is taking part in a summit with EU leaders in Brussels as she tries to win changes from Europe so her Brexit deal can be supported in the UK. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi. Right, so economists, economists are predicting that the South African Reserve Bank could raise interest rates uh, again in May next year, according to a Reuters poll. Now, the poll was taken among 25 economists after, after the Reserve Bank last month hiked the interest rates with a 25 basis 
points. Uh, this was the first such hike in nearly three years. And commenting on the poll, economists have pointed to possible rand depreciation and inflatory increases uh, in administered prices, particularly electricity tariffs. Now, power utility ESCOM has proposed to raise electricity tariffs by 15% a year for the next three years. Now, to talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by Chief Economist at Efficient Group, Davi Ruet. Davi, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure and good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Now, do you expect the Reserve Bank to continue to be on a hiking cycle next year? The short answer to that is probably yes. And I think there are two major reasons for, for my expectations. The one mm-hmm. has to do, and you've been referring to a couple of these, uh, inflationary pressures locally, like, for example, we do know that the current 5.2% has been on an upward trajectory recently. There has been some good news recently, and that is that the petrol price came down uh, quite nicely, and we can expect another fall in the petrol price next month. And then the short term, that is likely to be, keep a bit of a lift on the rate of increase on inflation. But the reality is, if you compare inflation over the last couple of months, we've seen an acceleration in inflation. But that simply is one reason why the Reserve Bank may decide to increase interest rate uh, further. A second reason has to do with, with what is happening internationally. Mm. Internationally, uh, the major central banks like the American Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, the U.S., as well as other central banks like the European Central Bank and even the Japanese Central Bank are gradually tightening monetary policy internationally. That means in the case of the Americans, they are increasing interest rates, and in the case of the Europeans, they will gradually stop with, with uh, the so-called quantitative easing and they actually go into reverse when they're draining some liquidity out of, out of the financial markets. But basically what it comes down to is that interest rate cycle or the interest rate cycle internationally is an upward trajectory and South Africa, because we're part of the international community, will eventually have to follow that trend as well. Now, Davi, how do we cope with, with the hikes? As South African consumers, how are we going to cope with these hikes? <laughs> well, the reality is that interest rates are not really that high in South Africa. We have currently uh, the inflation rate of close to let's call it six percent or so, and the inflation and interest rates are roughly at about let's call it eight or nine percent or so, depending which one of the interest rates you look at. And mm-hmm. that means that in real terms, interest rates in South Africa are not really that high. Um, and secondly, what has been happening in recent, well, in fact, the last couple of quarters is that people are not borrowing that much money anymore. And uh, they're not doing that because of the recent increase in interest rates, but also because of the tough economic conditions in South Africa. Uh, but also keep in mind, uh, if, if there's an increase in interest rates, then if you, if you owe money, it's going to be difficult for you. Your, your, your payment to your house and your car will go up. But if you are dependent on interest income, like, for example, the elderly in many instances, there will be a bit of an increase for them as well. Yes. And, what, and the last couple of years, interest rates being relatively low it simply means that especially the savers, and quite often the elderly, have been, have been on the short end of the stick. While people that have been borrowers and owing money, they've actually had quite a good time because interest rates have been relatively low. So even if there's a bit of an increase, it's, it, it's not really that high interest rates that we're talking about. We're not talking about what we saw in the 1990s, early 1990s, when interest rates were 20 and 25%. Mm, mm. We're certainly not talking about that. Okay. Now, would you say that the fact that the country is out of a recession now will ease the chances of higher interest rates? Actually, that will actually increase the chances of slightly higher interest rates. Oh, is it? Yeah, part of the reason why the Reserve Bank decided not to increase interest rates 
uh, the beginning of this year was because the South African economy was in a recession. And the economy starts growing faster, that actually provides uh, that actually boosts the chances of inflation accelerating, and that actually makes it easier for the Reserve Bank uh, to increase interest rates. Typically, what a central bank will do, if the economy slows down, they will reduce interest rates, mm-hmm. and when the economy accelerates, they will actually increase interest rates. So interest rates usually move in the opposite direction of economic growth. So an acceleration in economic growth is usually a sign that the Reserve Bank will not be far behind by increasing interest rates. So basically, if you're looking to borrow money, um, the best time to do it is when <laughs> the country no, is... is, no, is, is no. <laughs> no, no, the, the, the best time to borrow money is to borrow money because you want to, it depends on what you want to use the money for. Yes. If you want to, yeah, if you want to borrow money to start a business, mm-hmm. then you, make your, you, you get your business plan, you calculate your cash flows, you see what your budget looks like, and you borrow money based on those sort of decisions. Yes. You don't borrow money because you think you're gonna get, it's going to be more expensive tomorrow. And please don't borrow money for normal day-to-day consumption expenditure. That's not what, why you borrow money. You borrow money because you want to acquire capital goods, like mm-hmm. for example a house, and because you want to start a business. Those are the reasons why you start, want to borrow money. And it really doesn't matter where the, what the business cycle is, and it really doesn't matter whether the interest rates are at that moment. What's more important, does the whole picture make sense? Does yes. the budget make sense? And does it make sense to borrow money in that specific, specific environment in which you find yourself in? Okay. And uh, what is the economic outlook for the country in 2019? Well, I'm afraid uh, probably a little bit better than that with this experience in 2018. 2018 was really a horrible year. Yeah. And, uh, this year. And I'm afraid uh, next year is not going to be much easier. I think it's going to be a little bit better, but not much easier. Mm. You refer to income, for example, we're probably going to see significant increases in, in electricity prices. At the beginning of the year, probably a bit of a cut in petrol prices, which certainly is good news. But we've got a major issue at ESCOM. Not only at ESCOM, uh, the South African Airways is another one, and just about state-owned enterprises. And if ESCOM... If, we, uh, if the state takes over 100 billion rands of ESCOM's debt, for example, we're probably going to see a downgrade and a weaker currency and everything that goes with that. So I'm not too optimistic, uh, optimistic about 2019, with a bit of a like, slightly better than 2018, but not much. Davi, what, does, what, what do we need to do in order to make sure that we are on the right track? What government needs, they, start, they better start getting unpopular. And mm. they have to, yeah, you have to make some people very, very angry mm. because mm. that's inevitable. You have to get rid of a lot of people that works for ESCOM. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, we have to get rid of between 15 and 20,000 people that works for ESCOM. There are too many people working for ESCOM and they pay too much. The same goes for the South African Airways. There are too many working there and they are paid too much. Mm. The same goes for just about all the state-owned enterprises. In fact, generally speaking, the same goes for the whole of the civil service. Yes. And if you cut back on on the number of civil servants working for you, they are going to get angry at you. And they're probably not going to vote for you. So that is the sort of reality that we are faced, that we are faced with at the moment, is that the state needs to make people angry before we can turn this economy around. And I don't think the politicians are prepared to make a lot of people angry before the election. So I think we're probably going to limp along like this until at least after the elections, and hopefully then we will start taking that very bitter medicine. Darby, thank you very much for chatting to us. It's always great hearing from you and uh, getting some insight as to what is happening in uh, you know, the world of economy. My pleasure. Thank you. Now that was Darby Ruet, Chief Economist at Efficient Group.
Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. Now, women are still underrepresented in various fields, including science, where the glass ceiling is still a reality. Now, in support of female scientists, 14 African women were recently honored at the prestigious L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Awards program in Nairobi, Kenya. Now, this 20-year-old regional program recognizes the contribution and impact of women in the field of science. Dagalani Tsele is a PhD student from the University of South Africa who was honored for her research on the use of minerals in cancer treatment, among other applications. My research is focusing on the synthesis of the platinum group metal nanoparticles and hybrid nanocomposites by gamma radiolysis and evaporation induced self-assembly for the skin cancer treatment. In South Africa, we have a largest reserves for platinum group metals and mostly these minerals are exported without us benefiting from them. So this project aims to benefit from those minerals before exports. So we're using the platinum group metals to produce the nanoparticles that will be used for the cancer treatment, which focusing on the skin cancer treatment. So we are hoping to find a way that will counteract the side effects of the existing treatment methods of cancer. And also that we're hoping to provide the nanoparticles that will improve the solubility of purely water-soluble drugs and enable the drug delivery to the targeted cancer cells and not affect the healthy cells. That's the aim of our project. Interesting. So this is ongoing research. When did you start with this research and when can we expect results? I started around 2015. I can't really promise of the the results because, you know, with science, you keep on trying experiments, you keep on conducting experiments until you get the results that you want. And also still looking for collaboration for the stakeholders that will assist to take this forward. So I can't specifically tell you of the time that we expect the results. I wanted to ask about maybe some of the challenges that you are still facing in your research and you speak about um, hoping to get more collaborators in this research. Can you talk more about that and some of the challenges that you are facing? Some of the challenges that I'm facing as a researcher, like sometimes you want to use the equipment that we sometimes don't have them in our universities or don't have them in South Africa. So it's a challenge for us because we have to do the booking. You need the funding for that to go out there and use the equipment that you need for the research and also to get the stakeholders that will be interested in your research to take it forward. As I'm a scientist, you need people who understand also the medicine part of the research. Now, this recognition from Laurel and UNESCO, how do you think it will help you moving forward in your research and what exactly does it mean to you as a scientist? This award, the Laurel and UNESCO award, I can say I'm 
very honored to be amongst the 14 women that we awarded the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science in Kenya. And I see this as a great opportunity for me as a woman in science and also my project because it's been recognized. And it's also a platform to form collaborations to move my project forward. And this also encouraging me to go out there and be a role model to young girls who want to follow the scientific path. It's a great opportunity and also the funding that will take my mm. research to the next level. Take us back to where it all started briefly, Dagalani. I mean, your passion for science. How did it come about? Um, such a difficult career to pursue for many of us. <laughs> I know. Uh, My passion for science came purely through learning. I went to the science high school, Mary Secondary School, which is focusing on science. So that's when my interest for science started. And when I was in school, I used to participate a lot in Science Expo and Science Olympiad, as those were the competition that needed one to think and be creative. So science was really the subject that I was mostly interested in and that I enjoyed most when I was still in school and all thanks to my teacher Mrs. Sankaran who made it so interesting and for me I see science it has so many extraordinary developments through science starting from better ways for producing your energy going to the finding the cure of several diseases so for me I wanted to be part of this space where people are making impact in the community through the scientific knowledge. What has been your experience in the science field, which has historically been regarded as a man's career? Mm, I can say it hasn't been easy studying science as a woman, because, you know, when you grow up, it's believed that science is difficult, and there's that perspective that science is for men only. So few women study science, especially in my field in physics. There are few women. And when I was doing my honors class, we were... 14 in total, and only three of us were women. So as a woman, we have to fight to be taken serious and recognized. In and that was Dagalani Kele, a PhD student from the University of South Africa and recipient of the 2018 L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Award on the line talking to Jane Rabotat. Now the time is 17.45 Central African time. Earlier on we did speak to uh, economist Davi Ruet and he told us that things aren't really looking that great uh, for South Africa's economy in the coming year. But right now, where are we standing? Let's find out from Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, Samora. South Africa's Minister of Trade and Industry, Rob Davies, says the country's business people should consider the African continent as an extremely important market, especially for trade and value-added products. He was speaking at the launch of the South African Pavilion in Cairo, Egypt, during the inaugural Intra-Africa Trade Fair. Davies has described the trade fair as a platform for sharing trade, investment and market information, which enables buyers and sellers, investors and countries to meet, discuss and conclude business deals. The minister added that even though total trade among African countries is still lower than those on other continents, he's hopeful the IATF platform will pave the way to increase trade in Africa. 
South Africa's electricity parastatal Eskom has received a $105 billion loan injection from the French Development Agency to support the power utilities' transmission efforts. AFD is a public financial institution dedicated to fighting poverty and promoting sustainable development. In a statement, Eskom says the loan constitutes the first portion of a $457 multi-tranche loan facility signed between the two institutions in March last year. Earlier, Eskom confirmed that load shedding would be averted until the 13th of January next year. Eskom spokesperson Kulu Pasiwe says the market still believes in Eskom as a viable investment despite all its problems. The, the money will primarily go towards transmission development, but essentially it's money which is going to help us to extend electricity to the areas which currently do not have electricity at the moment. So things are gradually shaping up, and for the next 12 months, we will be spending 11.5 billion rand on maintenance, and that money has already been uh, ring-fenced so that uh, uh, it doesn't go to any other areas, but for exclusively for maintenance. Workers at the Greater Guiani Municipality in South Africa's Limpopo province have expressed fears that they might face salary cuts due to the municipality's investment into the now-liquidated VBS Mutual Bank. Mayor Sasavona Matibula was dismissed alongside six other mayors in the province for their involvement in the VBS scandal. The municipality earlier suspended its CFO while the technical director resigned, The municipality illegally deposited just over $11 million into the mutual bank despite the Municipal Finances Management Act barring municipalities from investing in mutual banks. South African Municipal Workers Union shop steward Noel Baloy. It put us in a state where we are not so sure about our salaries because we are very afraid as workers that one day we'll wake up and then the payday arrives that and found that no amount has, uh, has clogged uh, to the accounts of the workers because of this. Uh the European Central Bank has slightly lowered its growth outlook for the Eurozone. The lowering comes as uncertainties continues to mount from within and outside the region. Analysts believe European Central Bank Chief Mario Draghi remains deeply concerned at the fragility of the Eurozone growth and reserves the right to administer further monetary stimulus. The announcement by the ECB saw the euro slip, while Europe's major stock markets posted mild gains. French carmaker Renault says it will keep Carlos Ghosn as its chief executive, despite him being under arrest in Japan. The carmaker held an internal review of his pay package and found that it had conformed with French law. Gon was arrested on the 19th of November on charges of financial misconduct and underreporting his pay as head of Renault's partner Nissan. He has been dismissed as chairman of Nissan and Mitsubishi following his arrest. The U.S. dollar is trading at 10.42 Botswana Pula and at 11.85 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.90 Brazilian hail, at 66.39 Russian ruble, at 71.16 Indian rupee, at 6.87 Chinese yuan, and at 14.13 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. 
Gold is trading at $1,245 and platinum at $803 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $60.25 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. At the top of the show, I did say that Peter Steff Tutoy and Malcolm Marks are among five uh, nominees for the prestigious SA Rugby Player of the Year Award for 2018. And Neto Chimani is standing by to tell us a little bit more about that. Thank you, Samara. A very good evening to you all sport fans. Starting off with rugby news. Peter Steve Dutoy and Malcolm Marx are among the five nominees for the prestigious SA Rugby Player of the Year Award for 2018. The two bruising Springbok forwards, winners in 2017 Marx and 2016 Dutoy, are up against their national teammates Apiwe Dianji, who won the World Rugby Breakthrough Player of the Year Award last month, Franco Mostert and Andre Pollard. Our resident rugby analyst Mike Massina shares his thoughts on the awards. It's actually very, not even surprising, uh, those uh, two names uh, that uh, have been nominated. I think Piwa Yankee as well, where honestly, I mean, those are players that have really, really just performed very well for the Springbok team. And not for the Springbok team as well. If you go a little bit lower as well, if you look at uh, all their performance, the stuff that they've been doing for their province, the Super Rugby, for the Stormont Spitzer to do it, I really thought that it was awesome. And then Marco Marks, we all know that he was that pillar of that Lions team, really, including him and Apiwa Yankee. So I think it's going to be a very tight one, and uh, it's going to be very difficult. But I mean, there's a lot of talks as well that uh, perhaps maybe this one might go to Peter. Uh, the Detroit, obviously, those uh, words are coming from very important people. But then again, I think a lot of people really believe that, you know, Marco Marx might be the one who's going to be taking this one again, including all the international media, because it's been very highly, especially when he was playing for the Springbok team. Meanwhile, the Biz Blocks and their coach Neil Powell were yet again nominated in two categories following the successful defense of their World Rugby Sevens Series crown. Masina says the Sevens team has been very consistent. They've been very consistent, uh, you know, uh, the Sevens team. Uh, just uh, obviously, you know, for, for this past weekend, they didn't do too well. And then, well, I should say maybe for the past uh, two weeks, uh, they didn't do too well. Obviously, in Dubai, they didn't do well. But then again, uh, in Cape Town last uh, weekend, you could the a whole of huge in, in improvement. But then again, if you're looking at their squad at this stage, uh, you see that uh, they've got really, really, really young sets. So the experience of uh, the Cecil Africa, you know, that are injured at this stage, with, and the Snayman, you know, obviously they'll still have to really just come right at the later stage to try and cement their place. Uh, it's been very good for the Sevens. I think the Sevens, for the past four or five seasons, they've, they've had really good run so i won't be surprised as well you know for new Paul just to be named um the coach of the year but then again it's going to be very close as well because even Swiss, the brain from the lions we all know that you know the lions are where the runner-ups are this year in super rugby so you might be in as well for the big shot on that award 
On to soccer news. Having been announced by the club yesterday, Kemit Rasmus was officially unveiled by the South African Premiership side Cape Town City at a press conference at the VNA Waterfront today. The former Supersport United and Orlando Pirates striker has spent the past three years in Europe, first in France, then in Sweden, and most recently in Vitoria Setubal in Portugal. Now the Bafana Bafana striker will make Cape Town his home and will be available for Benny McCarthy's team from the first of January. Erasmus says he is excited for the new chapter in his career. I'm happy to be here. I think I don't need to introduce myself. A lot of you guys know me because I've been playing in this league for quite some time and I left. But I'm just happy to be here and I cannot wait uh, to get going in the new year. So I was happy to train today. It's been a long time coming for me to come back home and I think it uh, was the right thing for me. Not only for footballing reasons but beyond that as well. I'm just happy to be and I cannot wait to, to start playing. And finally, in swimming news. South Africa's Erin Gallagher has missed out on a medal at the 14th FINA World Swimming Short Course Championships in Hangzhou, China. Swimming in the final of the women's 100 meters freestyle out of lane 1, Gallagher posted a time of 53.14, which was only good enough for 8th and last position. Dutch superstar Nomikro Mijojo took the gold medal in a new championship record time of 51.14, ahead of compatriot Femke Himskerk at 51.6. 6-0 with American Mallory Comfort taking bronze at 51.63. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and Eto Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap up the first hour of Africa Digest for today. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours uh, when we will be giving you new, more news from an African perspective.